Last week, I trust you were challenged by Paul's example to be a faithful witness. You know, he sought, he even created opportunities to witness. He established common ground with those to whom he witnessed. He spoke their language. He identified with them. He openly shared his personal relationship with Christ. He wanted them to know what he had discovered. He wanted his witness to be from his heart. He was faithful to the commands of Christ. He said what he was told to say, whether whether he knew it would be received well or not. He didn't just witness when he felt like it. He witnessed because he'd been commanded to be a witness. And he failed at times. He failed at times. He was willing to risk failure to be faithful. And so must we. You know, all too often... It's the fear of failure that keeps us from being witnesses for Christ. You know, if we were Christ's personally appointed and spiritually equipped apostles, we would witness freely and and, and openly. But we're not apostles. And we're intimidated by our own limitations. We're afraid we'll blow it. And make things worse by saying the wrong thing or attempting something we're really not equipped to do. Well, it may surprise you to learn that even the Apostle Paul blew it at times. That he wasn't a perfect witness. In fact, he was a very imperfect witness. But still, God used him. In a great way. And that ought to encourage us. Because it means we don't have to be perfect witnesses either. So let's look at this imperfect witness this morning. And let's accept the fact that we too will be imperfect witnesses. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts this morning. Chapter 22. Ready to begin with verse 30. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. (laughs) That certainly wasn't a good start. (laughs) You know, the commander 
of the garrison stationed in the temple was frustrated. He couldn't find out why the Jews were trying to kill Paul. The mob couldn't tell him. And Paul's defense from the stairway didn't help. His plan to scourge Paul to get answers fell through when he discovered Paul was a Roman citizen. So he ordered a special assembly of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, to get to the bottom of the situation. He took Paul from the fortress and set him before the council. Paul looked intently at them, sized them up, and then addressed them as brethren. Now, that no doubt was his first mistake. They were generally addressed in a formal setting as rulers of the people and elders of Israel, not brethren. Then he basically questioned the need for the assembly by his assertion of a perfectly good conscience. He says, I don't know why you call this meeting. I've done nothing wrong. My conscience is clear before God. Now, that does say something about our conscience being a faulty guide. You know, Paul had hunted down Christians in his past. He had assisted in the murder of Stephen and done all this with a clear conscience. Jiminy Cricket was wrong. You can't let your conscience be your guide. All your conscience does is prompt you to do what you think to be right. And then condemn or approve after you've done it. It is not the source of truth concerning right and wrong. Now, Paul understood that. But his statement gave the council the impression that he thought he had done nothing wrong. That God had already judged him innocent of any wrongdoing. Well, they felt it was their place to make that determination, not his. So they thought him insolent and the high priest ordered him struck on the mouth. So how did he react? Did he react like Jesus? No. No, he verbally struck back. He basically said, God's going to get you for that, you whitewashed wall. Now, that was a graphic way of calling the high priest a hypocrite. Of saying he was like the whitewashed wall of a tomb that looked pretty on the outside, but was full of decay and stench on the inside. He then said... You try me according to the law and you violate it yourself? And it was illegal to strike an uncondemned man. But it wasn't Paul's place to say so, at least not then. You know, this had been Paul's chance to present the gospel to the high council of Jerusalem, but he had blown it. He offended them with the first thing out of his mouth and then totally lost it when they struck him. A shocked bystander brought him back to his senses. Do you revile God's high priest? Oops. I didn't know he was the high priest. And he may not have. 
There were 28 different high priests between 37 and 70 A.D. And the high priest may not have had time to dress in his official garb for this hastily called meeting. Whatever the case, Paul, in effect, apologized for his behavior. He said, I didn't know. And then he condemned his own action by quoting from the law, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of the people. You know, even if he didn't like the man and didn't appreciate what he had done, Paul knew that he should respect the man's position. Something that may speak to us today as well. He should never have cursed him. Paul, the imperfect witness, began by having to apologize for insolence and disobedience to the law. And then he made things worse. <laughs> Let's read on. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there arose a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Well, apparently Paul figured he wouldn't get a fair hearing, at least not then. So he tried basically to outmaneuver them, to get his accusers off track. And he did so by intentionally turning the council on itself. He noticed that some were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees were the priestly aristocracy. But they were more politician than priests. They didn't believe in spirits or angels or the resurrection. And as we were taught in the Sunday school, that is why they were sad, you see. All right, okay, as long as you got that. The Pharisees were the scribes, the experts in religious law, and, and most were very devout. Now, some were Hypocrites who obeyed the letter of the law but violated the spirit of the law. And Jesus often called them out on it. But they did accept the entire Old Testament as authoritative and they believed in the resurrection of the dead to eternal life. Now, Paul knew what they each believed and he used it to divide them. He cried out, I'm a Pharisee. And the son of Pharisees. And I'm on trial for my belief in the resurrection of the dead. Well, immediately the Pharisees and Sadducees turned on each other. It appeared for a moment that his ploy had worked. Some of the Pharisees came to his defense. You know, we find nothing wrong 
with this man. Suppose a, a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. But before long, things got out of hand and Paul had to be rescued again. The commander was afraid he was going to be torn in pieces. His plan backfired. But at least he tried. He tried. And there may be times when witnessing that you will raise an issue that will land you in hot water. You may get in over your head and need to be rescued. That's okay. Don't let that stop you. Just call for help. Call me if you want to. You know, I love to get calls, even late at night, to help answer sticky questions that have come up in the middle of discussions about the Bible. Nothing makes me feel better than have someone call and say, man, I need some help here. And don't hesitate. Don't hesitate to ask for help. It's no disgrace to have to be rescued while witnessing. You know, it's, it's like bass fishing. If your lure doesn't get snagged on occasion, you're fishing in the wrong spot. Okay? So, risk it. Go ahead. It might work. Even if it didn't work for Paul on this occasion. And he found himself in need of encouragement to keep going. Verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Now, what, what's not said here speaks volumes. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and stood by his side. And apparently, it wasn't a vision of Christ. It was the resurrected Christ himself. Paul wasn't in a trance like he had been some 25 years earlier in Jerusalem when Jesus told him to leave the city because no one would, would accept his testimony. The language used here indicates that Jesus physically appeared and stood by Paul's side and said, take courage. Take courage. Now, why would he do that? Well, obviously, Paul must have been very discouraged and in need of encouragement. And for good reason. You know, he had finally arrived in Jerusalem with the offering he had been collecting for several years for the church there, only to be given a cool reception by the elders. They had then asked him to take a Jewish vow to prove his loyalty to Jewish tradition. When he did so, the Jews mobbed him in the temple and tried to kill him. Now, he had blown it when taken before the Sanhedrin. He had good reason to be discouraged. I'm sure he felt like a failure. Nothing was going as he had planned in Jerusalem. But Jesus wouldn't leave him in despair. 
He came to him by night and said, Take courage. Now, this is something Jesus had said before. And it's actually one word in the original language. And Jesus spoke that word five times, as recorded in the New Testament. To the paralytic, Lord, from a hole in the roof, he said, Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. To the woman who had suffered 12 years with a hemorrhage, he said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you whole. When he came to the disciples walking on the water, he said, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. In the upper room, he said, Take courage. I have overcome the world. Apparently, this is something Jesus says to those in need of encouragement. And now he says it to Paul, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. You see, Jesus didn't consider him a failure. In fact, he still had work for him to do. You see, God doesn't give up on us because we fail. We're not called to be successful, just faithful. Just faithful. God still had work for Paul to do, just in another location. Let's finish out the narrative here. And when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, what is it you have report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than forty of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. Therefore the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready, 
by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came upon them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council and found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. And when these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked from what province he was. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. It was impossible for Paul to continue witnessing in Jerusalem. Forty assassins vowed to kill him. I often wonder if they gave up on their vow not to eat or drink until they succeeded. (laughs) But they were serious. They plotted against him with the chief priests and the elders. His work had come to an end in Jerusalem. So the Lord arranged for Paul to go to Caesarea. He placed Paul's nephew in a location where he could overhear the assassin's plan and gave him immediate access to Paul, who has been held as a prisoner, and access to the proper authority. God then led the commander to arrange an escort of 470 soldiers to assure Paul's safe departure from Jerusalem. He left more like a king than a criminal. And he left with a letter of introduction for the governor that basically said he was an innocent man in need of protection. So Paul was delivered into the protective custody of Felix in Caesarea. And there, over the next two years, he would be given the opportunity to witness before two governors and the king. Before being transported at government expense to the capital, to Rome. Obviously, God was not finished with him. He still had work for him to do, even though he had blown it in Jerusalem. And as I said, God doesn't expect us to be perfect witnesses, just faithful witnesses. We need, we need to realize that. 
We need to open our eyes to the fact that God just wants us to be available and willing to be used. And that if we will just open our mouths, He'll see to it that the message gets out. Don't be afraid to share your faith with someone this week. Don't be afraid to be an imperfect witness. It's the only kind God has.